Hi and welcome to Charatortus Summit podcast focusing on developing countries we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change biodiversity sustainability conservation and many more Today's guest is Rohan Nathar Rohan is a senior scientist and founding trustee of the Nature Conservation Foundation NCF in Karnataka India He heads NCF's Oceans and Coasts program an interdisciplinary group that works on a range of issues including understanding human wildlife interactions in aquatic environments his research interests concern issues of conservation particularly the implications of climate change for marine ecosystems the rational management of marine systems and fisheries in india and the interface between policy traditional practices and ecosystem management i am kiti manyan and i'll be your host for today Hi Rohan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm going to get started by asking you this. Can you take us through your career arc and please do give us more details about your organization Nature Conservation Foundation. First of all, thanks a lot for getting me on this podcast. It's an honor to be here. Well, I I had a fairly uninspiring youth, I would think. I grew up in Bombay in the 1970s and 80s and I lived by the sea all my life. I lived in a house that overlooked the sea, but it's, the coastal waters of Bombay were these, these gray and choppy and dirty, and they were not very tempting at all. So most of my, I think my early youth, I didn't really think about the sea that much, even though I lived in Bombay with the sea in front of me. I studied at university at Saint Xavier's College, it's a university now. I went to the Department of Zoology there, and I think that that for me was the beginning of a turning point where I began to see. that this is something that i would like potentially to do in the future and from there i went to the wildlife institute how did i get to the wildlife institute of india which is in in dehradun once again i think through basically a series of real coincidences when i was in the zoology department in in zavias i heard a talk from a student who was who had done her masters there in the wildlife institute and she said well you know that these entrance tests happening in a little while time why don't you just sit for them And so I did and I got into the Wildlife Institute and over there it was really a, a bunch of people who were fascinated with essentially terrestrial wildlife. They were looking at mountains and forests and all these other exotic places. But I decided to go and do my master's dissertation in the Gulf of Kutch instead. And that's when I started working on coral reefs for the first time. This was sometime in 1996 I think. And I haven't left. I started working in the Gulf of Kutch in the intertidal reefs of a small island called Pirotem, looking at how coral communities were established, looking at the effects of pollution on these reefs. It is a fairly naive piece of work I would I would think in retrospect. But since then I haven't actually left. I've been studying coral reefs since then and coastal systems. You asked about NCF. Yeah. Well, NCF was born once again within the Wildlife Institute itself. We were a bunch of people students sitting around chatting after our classes what we saw about the wild places that we visited we were discussing ideas discussing problems of conservation trying to find institutions around us that we would potentially carry on our work that the work that we loved and we found that actually none of the institutions around us really seemed to give us the kind of satisfaction or the place that we would like to be in and so i think with more enthusiasm than good sense we decided why not start an institution ourselves and as one of my uh, colleagues says 
we thought it was a good idea at the time. So we picked up a bit of the loose change really that we had in our back pockets and set up an institution. And that is what NCF has become right now. It's an institution that started in 1996 with the aim to science-based wildlife conservation. We believe that it should be rigorous, that rigorous science should underpin pretty much everything that we do in conservation and that it should be socially equitable because we live in a country that is where wildlife and people share spaces such a lot. We believe that it is absolutely critical that whatever we do in conserving wildlife doesn't harm the people who are least able to actually pay the costs of conservation. NCF is now entering its 25th year. Wow. Yeah, and we're about, I think, all in all, about 150 people or more uh, working across a range of different ecosystems and habitats across the country, from the Trans Himalayas to the Northeast rainforests to the Western Ghats. And uh, the work that I do has largely to do with the oceans and coasts. Perfect. And it goes perfectly into my next question, which is about coastal ecosystems. And in your opinion, what essential services do coastal ecosystems supply? I know, you know, we keep talking about fisheries and they play a huge role, but it'd be good for our listeners to also know what more is there about and, and what is the kind of importance they have. Keithy, about one third of humanity lives on or near the coast, within, say, the first 100 kilometers of the coast. And so we're talking about what, approximately 2.4 billion people. <laughs> right. So that's not an accident of geography. So people flock to the coasts for a reason. They are very important areas. These are areas that are highly productive. They are also you know, areas of where you communicate with the rest of the world. In India itself, in 2000, there are about, I think, 64 million people living along the coast. And that is expected to rise by three times. In 2000, it was about 64 million. By 2060, we expect that number to rise to about 200 million or even more than that. And so a disproportionate number of people live on the coast compared to the hinterland. And the reason for that is actually that they have a huge number of, of services. And we, of course, we know about fisheries. Okay? So that brings us to the first group of services, which is essentially what, what are called the provisioning services. And so you have coastal ecosystems like coral reefs, mangroves, seagrasses, salt marshes, estuarine areas, and there are a whole range of other rocky reefs and things. And they are a huge source of food, but a whole range of other resources as well, not just food. India itself ex extracts something like, I don't remember the numbers now, but it's about I think, nearly three to four metric tons of fish per year million metric tons per year, a fish, squid, shrimp, and a whole range of other products from its exclusive economic zone. And I think the third largest capture fisheries in Asia and among the largest worldwide as well. So in terms of just provisioning services, coastal ecosystems play a very, very vital role. They feed a huge part of the planet. Coral reefs among them is perhaps, I mean, they're among the biggest of, the, of those providers, even though they have a very, very small proportion of the world's ocean, they support by some estimates, about 25% of world fisheries. So fisheries themselves are clearly important, but I think perhaps what is less recognized are the other supporting and regulatory services that these ecosystems provide. So if you think about the ocean, you should think of it really as some kind of a global circulatory system. And it's constantly moving. It's connecting different parts of the globe together. And as a result, it, it's really 
kind of regulatory system. It helps to regulate global climate, transporting energy, nutrients from one place to another. And this is particularly strong along the coast. And that is really the engine of fisheries. So that, uh, that is one important regulatory service that the ocean provides. But if you come closer to the coast, once again, you find that the coasts protect the systems from storm damage, from sea level rise, which is the big issue when it comes to climate change. When it comes to pollution control, the, the seas really take most of our all the garbage that we are and the filth that we generate, and it dilutes it. Many of these coastal systems like mangroves play very important roles in the filtering of water. And then, of course, in the context of climate change, carbon sequestration and, and the burial of carbon becomes a critical ecosystem service that coastal systems provide. So some of these systems like seagrasses, salt marshes, mangroves, the most valuable systems when it comes to carbon sequestration and burial. Now, that there's a little side note over there when it comes to carbon sequestration, is that these systems are brilliant at sequestering the carbon, the excess carbon that we're generating, and burying it. But as soon as you talk about habitat de uh, degradation, as soon as you degrade these habitats, all that carbon gets released. And these systems which bury such a lot of carbon are then actually becoming net emitters. So they might actually add to global pollution instead of uh, removing from it. So that's when it comes to the supporting and regulatory services. But I think the services that are almost uh, invisible to most of us are the vital cultural services that we, you know, we completely ignore them. We know about coastal tourism, of course, you know, beaches, water sports, all the rest. But I think we, we forget that how deeply coastal systems are etched in, in our myths, in our legends. They're so important in our religions. They become sources of inspiration. Uh, they're full of literary and religious symbolism. They influence our art, our music. You know, they're linked to our spirituality, etc. And I think that these are almost as important in terms of our human identity as all the other provisioning and you know, services that you can actually put a number on. I really like this last point you made. It's something so intangible in that sense, right? And it, if climate change kind of erases an ecosystem, the hope these identities also lose their importance in that sense. So how is climate change affecting these ecosystems? And are there climate and non-climate drivers as well? Oof, that's a tough one. I mean, it <laughs> seems like a straight bad question, right? But it's it's actually pretty difficult to answer. The difficulty is really about how you distinguish climate change from all the other forces of local, regional, global anthropogenic change, that all of these are simultaneously affecting these coastal ecosystems. And that's the difficulty. That's the biggest difficulty when it comes to trying to understand what's happening with the climate and how climate is affecting these systems. So if you think about the uniquely climate drivers, the ones that are directly linked to a changing climate, and how they're affecting marine and coastal systems, they would probably be sea level rise, increasing sea surface temperature, okay, ocean acidification. These are the three things that you typically hear of. But apart from that, you would also have the disruption in oceanic current systems. And apart from that, the intensity and frequency of uh, unusual weather events. So we know that the cyclones are increasing in the Indian Ocean, and they're increasing in intensity, not in frequency, but in intensity. They become more difficult to predict. They become highly intense with time. And each one of these, I mentioned sea level rise, sea surface temperature, ocean current disruption, acidification, and unusual weather events, all of these are affecting each ecosystem in different ways. And the thing is that none of these variables act alone. They 
interact between each other and they also interact with a whole suite of other drivers such as the drivers that happen at a local or at a regional level overfishing habitat destruction coastal pollution etc and teasing those apart how do you separate the effects of overfishing for instance from the effects of sea surface temperature rising imagine a system like a coral reef which is the system that i study most where as a result of of sea surface temperature you have a whole lot of coral declining and as a result of the coral declining many of the fish that are dependent on the coral are also then declining in their numbers okay their numbers fall out and that seems like a fairly simple thing to establish but then on top of that if you have overfishing acting as well on that system it's very difficult to separate the effects of overfishing from the effects of climate change alone that one example is it's true for absolutely everything else habitat destruction coastal pollution all of these interact and they exacerbate the condition exacerbate the effects of climate change the other thing they do as well is that they reduce the overall climate resilience of your system so your systems are they find it much much more difficult to recover after every climate disaster what i'll add is that what makes marine systems special in their responses to climate change is i mean this is not unique to marine systems but it's particularly prevalent in marine systems one is their interconnectedness that marine systems just by their very nature tend to be highly connected to each other you don't have as many barriers to the flow of energy and flow of species between systems and that interconnectedness means that a problem that generates in one area can also affect many ecosystems downstream and so that's the first issue the second is that they are inherently surprising they have some kind of inevitable surprise inherent in them what do i mean by that it's that they are that they have nonlinear responses everything could be chugging along and seems hunky dory with increasing stress but you increase the stress by just a little bit more and they collapse without any any warning right. and the inherently surprising nature of many marine systems means that we've got to be extremely careful because once these systems go over that threshold and collapse to a new ecosystem state it is very very difficult to bring them back to their original state and so the interconnectedness of the systems and the surprisingness of the systems is the, the inherent surprise inherent in these systems are the two things that characterize many marine systems so given that what we know for certain is that coastal systems are changing but i think that what i would like to communicate is that this change is actually highly variable so not all species respond the same not all are as badly affected some will actually do better in a warming world which creates it's another set of problems what is clear is that the rate of change is faster that we have than we have ever known in human experience and most people living along the coast most societies of living along the coast we build our societies on the assumption of constancy and this is the principal problem when it comes to climate change i find it very interesting you talked about oceans having their surprising and it's very weird in my mind i think of oceans as robust right the image that comes to mind when i look at you know you go across the harbor and you think of oceans as very robust systems so it's strange to being described as something delicate and anything that puts it off balance then completely as you said collapses the whole system so it's a very interesting thought indeed india's coastline now stretches for about 7500 kilometers and coastal districts house roughly 17% of its population 
how prepared do you think India is in terms of a coast-wide response to climate change? And can we talk a little bit about national and state-level plans to deal with coastal issues? Okay, just to address one thing before I go in there, if I gave you the impression that coastal systems are inherently delicate, that's not quite true. I mean, there is a huge amount of resilience in these systems. And I, what I'd like to say is that right. that resilience is something that we need to emphasize a lot. But that resilience has a limit. And it's just basically about understanding those limits that we need to grapple with. So to come to your question itself is, you know, understanding the ecological responses to climate change is one thing. It's a difficult task, but it is still tractable. I think that within India itself, I don't think we should fool ourselves, our track record of ecological research on climate change is actually quite abysmal along the coast. There are very, very few studies on the effects of climate change on coastal ecosystems. But we can make a fair guess on what the projected response will be or uh, what the projected responses are based on what we already know about how climate change is affecting systems elsewhere. What is much more difficult to know is, I talked about all these climate factors, the environmental factors interact with each other. But when we get to social, economic and political variables, these are also interacting with climate change in extremely complex ways. But we know that actually that these factors are interacting. We are talking not just about an ecological system, we are talking about a social, ecological, economic and political system altogether that is together responding to climate change. I mean, for instance, you can imagine a hinterland drought in the wake of an El Nino, together with, say, local unrest caused by caste inequities or something. And, and it sends thousands of people flocking to the coast where they're looking for jobs. And it, when they rush to the coast, they are met with local resistance and they become part of a persecuted underclass who are then forced to live in substandard housing along the coast, which will then be the worst affected when the coastal systems get hit by storms or by declining resources, etc. And when it comes to overfishing and things like that. And you can't imagine how to build a model that can accurately predict this. You know, and we are largely groping in the dark here. We describe the, the consequences, but we don't really have ways of predicting this. And certainly ways to plan for this is really, very really difficult. So that's the context in which we are talking about how India is responding to climate change. India has got a strange response to climate change. At a policy level, I think India is a path setter along with the other BRICS nations. I mean, we have a difficult balancing act as a country. You know, we have to tackle climate change on the one hand, but we also have to pursue our developmental agendas and we also have to ensure social equity. So these three different yeah. dilemmas, we have to do them all together. And that balancing act is not, not easy. Some people will argue that these are actually not mutually exclusive that we don't need to sacrifice one in order to achieve the other. But that's another thing. It's been an important voice in the climate change debate for asserting its own right to develop, okay? And at the same time, trying to manage equity and things like that. So if you look at the India's National Action Plan on Climate Change, it was published, I think, in 2008, it focuses on highlighting the fact that Per capita, we are only a small part of the problem. We didn't start the fire. Therefore, we have the right to develop as we please, more or less. Yeah. And then, of course, there's this whole section which is about how we deal with climate change. It's a highly techno-positive kind of response, which is we have a bunch of technological fixes, market mechanisms, 
and that what I find is a really strange oxymoron, sustainable development. So between these three things, market mechanisms will fix the whole thing. And what can't be fixed by market mechanisms, we'll have technological fixes. And we will put a Band-Aid on development and call it sustainable development. So that's generally what at the national level our response to climate change is. When it comes to the coasts itself, the mountains, the rivers, the forests, they all have their own separate national missions with dedicated task forces dedicated to them, addressing climate change very specifically. But as far as I can see, the coasts get absolutely no mention. At least they don't have their own separate mission. So it falls on the coastal states of India to handle climate change along the coasts as they see fit. Now, if you look at individual state plans, of course, they're completely alive to the problems of climate change because it's so much a part of their each state. So individual state plans, the ones that I've read, all list the evident dangers of climate change on the coastal and oceanic systems. But then when you look at the measures to handle them, once again, they're strangely at odds with, with all these stated dangers. It's almost like these are speaking from with two different voices. So they are linked once again to asserting developmental rights. It's about increasing fisheries production. It's about developing the capabilities of production systems once again. And they throw a bunch of socks to the environment by investing in alternate strategies and alternate energy technologies, etc. We had one law, which is actually not linked to climate change per se, which is the, the Coastal Regulation Zone Act. And that was, even though it wasn't linked to climate change, it would probably have done a lot to protect coastal systems from many of the inherent dangers of sea level rise, storm damage, and all the rest. But as you probably know, those laws are also being seriously watered down, along with the systematic dismantling of environmental protection at the altar of this unbridled capitalist development we seem to be increasingly moving towards. It's good to hear your thoughts on things like this, because this thing about how we didn't start the fire, I think it got my attention, because it's always about saying that the onus is not on us to look at you know environmental regulation because we need to catch up to whatever development is out there. So thereby, it is okay for us to not look at regulation strongly or strictly in that sense. And the unfortunate result of this, of course, is that the environment suffers in the, in the long term and so do the people, right? Ultimately, it's the people in that state living in the country who are suffering. And I hate to say this, but that really sucks. No, but Kitty, I mean, I, I completely agree with the analysis that we didn't start the fire. I mean, our, you know, when you just look at the global consumption patterns, we actually didn't start the fire. We are a very small part of the per capita, at least. But first of all, we are an important contributor to global pollution levels. And yeah, the yeah. consequences of that, regardless of who started it, okay, the, the nature of climate change impacts is that it doesn't matter who started it. You have to deal with the yeah. impacts of that. And we are already beginning to see those impacts. And that is going to be something that's extremely real. And while we can argue politically about our need to develop, we at the same time really need to be worried about how we deal with the consequences, the real consequences that are happening to real people on the ground. And that's what is more worrying. Absolutely. Can we talk about coral bleaching around the coast of India? I remember like reading this report which said, you know, 85% of the cores in the Gulf of Manar bleached between mid-April to mid-May after sea surface temperatures rose. Is it possible to do better prediction of coral bleaching? 
So this is a big question that we've been trying to answer within the coral reef world. How do we get better models of, of coral bleaching? Coral bleaching, I'm not sure if everyone is aware, it's linked to essentially any form of stress that corals undergo. Corals are very briefly there. They have a symbiotic relationship between an animal, which is the coral, and a dinoflagellate, which is a photosynthetic, I suppose, a plant, which lives within the, the coral and produces something like 90% of, of its nutrition using sunlight, using photosynthesis. Now, under conditions of stress, that relationship breaks down. And the zooxanthellae are released into the water and the coral turns first different shades of pale and, and then becomes completely white. If the stress continues for a long time, the coral eventually dies. And the principal stress that causes bleaching in the climate change context, the context is increasing sea surface temperature. And that is often linked to these unusually strong El Nino events that start off in the Pacific, but then come to the Indian Ocean as well, and result in sea surface temperatures rising by two to three degrees in a bad El Nino year. So predicting the El Nino and is completely linked to being able to predict bleaching. And we have fairly good models of the El Nino itself, and we know, you know several months in advance when an El Nino will occur based on ocean current systems, based on tracking of satellite data of sea surface temperatures. It's much, much more difficult at a local level to get good estimates of coral bleaching. One thing that the coral reef community has been using is something called the degree heating weeks, which is the number of weeks temperatures rise abnormally okay, at a particular region. And beyond a certain number of degree heating weeks, you'd expect corals to start bleaching. Of course, that number works at a global level, but at for every region, it's fairly inaccurate. And the, the reason it's very inaccurate is that the kind of temperature stress that every reef receives is highly dependent on a whole range of other things. Whether there are upwellings in the region, whether there's there are other currents that cool down the system, whether the system, the reef is within a lagoon or whether it's outside the lagoon, whether it's cloudy at a particular time, whether you have islands that shade the reef or don't. If you have sedimentation in the water, it can actually help in reducing the ultraviolet radiation. So a whole range of other factors that are extremely local interact with these global factors of sea surface temperature to eventually give you the temperature stress that the coral is experiencing. So it's complex. I know for the Lakshadweep that around October, November, December, if the temperatures start rising beyond what I consider to be average temperatures, I know that I've got to watch out for bleaching sometime in April or May. But that's true for Lakshadweep, it might not work for other places. You mentioned Lakshadweep, and we'd like to hear more about your own work at, in the Lakshadweep area. It's hard for me to imagine the areas being populated because, you know, whenever we say Lakshadweep, I think of these blue oceans and not much human habitation. And perhaps you can help me in breaking my misconception, but please tell us more about your work in the area. So, I mean, your description is, is not too different from the majority of people in the country. Most tourists, they come expecting a place as as unpeopled as they see it on the brochures. You know, most people believe that when they come to the Lakshadweep, they'll have a kind of Maldives-style experience with an uninhabited island to themselves. And actually, it is possible to get that experience in a few of the islands in the Lakshadweep, in Bangara Mothenakara. But for the most part, the Lakshadweep is not Maldives. 
it is one of the most densely populated parts of rural India. It's about 2,000 people per square kilometer. And that's a lot. And lots of people living on tiny strips of sand, which are essentially just coral sand, completely built of coral. So our team has been working in the Lakshadweep since about 1998, to try to understand the impacts of coral reefs of climate change on the reefs of the Lakshadweep. I mean, it started off with my work in, in 98 when I went there to find out how the reefs were faring in the wake of the 1998 bleaching. In 1998, there was a very large El Nino and people were seeing reefs bleaching all around the world. And I knew that we had absolutely no information from India. So I did a quick survey of a bunch of reefs in the country. I went to the Gulf of Kutch, where I started off my earliest piece of work in, in coral reefs. I went to the Gulf of Manar and I went to the Lakshadweep was by far one of the worst affected systems. By, I think, December of that year, we had lost something like 80 to 90% of the corals of the reefs that I was serving. It was quite bad. And since then, I kept going back and did my PhD as well, tracking the, how these, these reefs were, going to, were responding to that. I didn't expect in 98 that those systems would ever recover. But by around 2008, many of these reefs showed really handsome recoveries. Luxury seemed to be bucking the trend in, in relation to most of the reefs around the world. And that was really surprising. I mean, for me, that was a lesson of optimism, that you should never write off these systems, that they have more tricks up their sleeve than, you know, than we give them credit for. And so some reefs were just blossoming beautifully, and the corals were recovering really well in these systems. And then 2010, we had another El Nino, and once again, we had a major collapse of lots of the coral. And since then, the trajectory has been slightly different. The reefs have not been recovering as much. In 2016, we had another bleaching event and the reefs declined once again. And then we've had a bunch of cyclones that have hit it. Cyclone Oki was the most recent one in 2018. So we've had a series of these disturbances that are coming thicker and faster. And as a result, we have a kind of ratcheting down of the ecosystem. And I first saw the reefs of the Lakshadweep in around 96 or so, 96, 97. And they were among the most stunningly beautiful places. I'd never seen an ecosystem as beautiful as, as the coral reefs of the Lakshadweep. Today, they're very different. They're struggling against the force of all these disturbances. What we have found is that it, if you look at this 20 years of work, is that the reefs have actually, with every bleaching event, less and less of the coral is dying, which means, gives you the sense that the system is becoming more resistant because yeah. most of the most vulnerable corals are being removed from the system and what remains are essentially inherently resistant. But the recovery periods, the recovery itself is much, much more protracted. So currently, from our estimates, just as the back of the envelope, it probably requires another 30 years without any disturbance for the reefs get back to its pre-98 condition. But of course, we don't have 30 years. The interbleaching intervals, first it was about 10 years or so, and yeah. now it's becoming three or four years. Once every three or four years, you have another El Nino event. So 30 years without disturbance is unheard of. You're not going to have that. So the systems are going to be very, very different. And add to that the fact that before 2012 or 13, Part of that inherent resilience of the system was actually because the fishing community in the Lakshadweep was actually not fishing the reefs too much at all. 
not commercially at least. They were fishing in the open ocean for tuna. The resilience of the system that we noticed before 2010 was linked, at least in part, to the fact that fishing on the reefs was fairly low. Between 2012 and 2014, that system has changed, and people have started fishing the reefs commercially as well right now. They are fishing them for the large groupers and the large snappers and the jacks, and they're taking them back to the mainland. And that commercial fishery is undercutting much of the inherent resilience of the reef. And so what we've been seeing in the Lakshadweep is a steady decline of the ecosystem, of the coral reef ecosystem that holds up the coral reef. And we're seeing local pressures mounting as well. Now, eventually what is at stake in the Lakshadweep is the what I call the biosecurity of these islands. Because being coral atolls, the entire island is completely dependent on the integrity of the coral fortresses that are built around it. Now, the coral, when as long as it's growing, will actually provide some kind of a barrier against these large storms that come across. But once they start eroding, what tends to happen is that you get much, much more erosion on the beaches. You get much more salt water that overwashes and starts moving into your freshwater systems as well. And so you have a decline of the land, but also a decline of freshwater. And once that starts happening, these islands become rapidly uninhabitable. And that is the kind of process that I fear is happening right now. So in our latest studies, what we're trying to do is to measure the potential of these reefs to continue to grow. Because right now that inherent function is being lost because of these continuous disturbance events. And we are trying to see whether the reefs themselves can sustain life on these islands and for how much longer it can do that. So that's where our recent work is focused. Do you think governmental intervention might tip the balance or do you think it's of no use? And it's, it's essentially a combination of factors, which is people need food, reefs are eroding, there's climate change happening. There's a whole bunch of other things. But do you think the government can maybe not potentially put a stop to it, but maybe show like a more sustainable path forward? Is that possible? Oh, I think it certainly is possible. I think that right now, much of the, the resilience of the reefs in the Lakshadweep are you know, what I call conservation by accident. So the government mm. really hasn't done any proactive management to ensure the resilience of these systems. So I think that the government can play an important role in bringing some of these destructive effects particularly of reef fishing, under some check, okay, if the government has the will to do that. So that certainly, and I think there are some great government officers who are trying their best to make that happen. Uh, local communities also, I think, play an extremely important role in this because they themselves need to come to the recognition that it's not merely their livelihoods that are at stake, it's actually their survival that's at stake over here. Yeah. So they also play, I think, a fairly critical role. And that's something that needs to be recognized. However. Given that we are talking about coral atoll systems, the outlook is not very optimistic because based on what we are finding and based on what people have been finding elsewhere, atoll systems as well, these are systems that are probably going to be uninhabitable within the next 100 years, if not earlier. Some estimates say 50 or 60 years. Other estimates say about 100 years. We ourselves are right now doing studies to try and find out exactly how long these reefs are going to be able to sustain some form of sustainable living on the islands. 
it'll take a bit of time to figure that out. But yes, so the government can do a fair amount. The community can do a fair amount. But eventually, climate change is going to be one of the biggest factors that affects these systems. And we can't get away from that. And then how do we look at building resilience? I mean, you talked about becoming uninhabitable. Then don't you think like climate refugees will become a part and parcel of our future? You're talking about 50, 70 years. People don't have a place for themselves. A place they might have called their home. Their whole life is not there anymore. And it's always is a vulnerable populace that gets affected. So how do we look at building climate resilience for coastal communities like this? Is that even possible? Is there a possibility of this? I'm generally an optimist. So I'd like to believe that we as humans are like infinitely adaptable and push comes to shove, we'll be able to get our stuff together and to do something about it. Yeah. But I think that for a start, in order to fight the battle, I think we must actually admit that there is a battle to be fought. And that's the first thing. The most surprising thing about climate change is that most of us living along the coast are actually blissfully oblivious to its realities. You might expect that in places like Lakshadweep, where climate change is so much a part of the ecological system, it would be much more part of local narratives. But it isn't. This is what worries me the most, that there is a general blindness to climate change. Even in places where people are being affected by it the most, they will always put it down to some other cause. So I said that I'm an optimist, but two decades of working on climate change in India, and you this optimism gets beaten out of you. It's difficult to remain upbeat yeah. when you see the disregard of governmental levels or the, the consequences of uh, developmental directions. We can certainly make things worse. Can we make things better? Perhaps we can. But what we can certainly do is make things worse. How do we work towards some kind of a climate resilient future? I think we spoke earlier about these inherent properties that I talked about in the system, about the interconnectedness of these systems, the inevitable surprise of these social ecological systems. So I think we need to embrace these as central principles. And these become the central lenses which we look at any plan for the coasts and the islands. It's very clear in places like Lakshadweep. There are very clear safe operating spaces. Beyond that safe operating space, and you're in unknown territory. You are prone to sudden shifts, to major catastrophes. And what we need to do is really to maintain these boundary conditions, maintain these safe operating spaces as these are the boundary conditions. And every developmental activity, if you want to design a port, you want to set up a tourism development, you want to develop your fishery, anything that you do, all of these are extremely important. They're extremely valid things that you need to do for the development of the people, for making sure that the economy contributes. All of that is important, but you need to look at it through, is this activity going to work within the boundaries of what the system can provide? Because that eventually needs to be the lens through which we do all our planning. So I think that we need to do three things when thinking about these systems. The first is that we need to find strategies to adapt. That recognizing that climate change is going to be with us, and it is with us already, we need to plan for adaptation already. Okay, We need to have a whole bunch of strategies about how we handle our fisheries, how we handle healthcare, how we handle food security, how we handle water security. All these things are going to be part of our adaptation strategies. We then need a whole set of mitigation strategies, strategies that when you have climate change disasters, we need to know how to mitigate them. We need to have disaster management plans. 
ready for them because these are things that are going to happen. We cannot be caught unaware of these. The mitigation strategies can be hard or soft. We should start with the soft ones. You know, when you, you have a whole lot of coastal erosion taking place, if you have uh, high integrity in your coastal ecosystems, beach erosion does reduce. But if those systems doesn't become possible, then you need to, we need to think of, in the case of the Lakshadweep, for instance, if the coral reefs are not going to be able to grow on their own, we need to find ways in which to assist in that recovery somehow. If you want to make sure that people live on the islands, we would have to think of other strategies, which are stronger engineering strategies to deal with that. If these are not strategies that I would like, but if you want to maintain people living on these islands, those hard engineering strategies may be completely necessary 50 years from now or 60 or 70 years from now. And finally, so adaptation is one, mitigation is the, is the second. We need to also actively thinking right now about retreat strategies. The coasts are going to be become more and more difficult to live in. Islands are going to become impossible to live in. We need to have a whole bunch of strategies that are associated with retreating, with climate refugees. How do you prepare people for mass scale movement to other locations? You have to prepare them psychologically, you have to prepare them culturally, you have to prepare them in terms economically as well. You don't just have to prepare the communities that are moving, you also have to prepare the, the communities to which they are going. Yeah. And those retreat strategies are also going to be an important part of our, our overall climate resilience strategy that we build. Gosh, the last part, I can't even imagine a world where all these, especially the last bit, is designed and ready. I don't think our communities are thinking so far ahead that we have set strategies in place where we say, okay, these people will move here and these communities will welcome them. I mean, I know what you're saying needs to be done, but I don't think we're there yet. And I don't know when we'll be also, which is kind of scary for me to imagine just people lost without a home. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it doesn't require too much forward thinking because this is going to happen. It's already happening in many parts of the country. So we will have to deal with it and we'll have to deal with it fairly soon. Also, you talked about the blindness in people themselves living on the islands, unable to see what's happening. What about people who are living in the hinterland, people living in urban areas? We always think of coast areas as somewhere to go, relax, have a holiday, return. And you talked about this whole ecosystem being damaged and the time taking for it to recover is getting longer and longer in that sense. So how do you get people to realize there's a ripple effect and how do we get people to kind of develop this empathy that, this is happening at the coast and it is going to affect us also in the long term. Climate change is, I think, it's a peculiar problem to get your head around. And I think that's a primary difficulty. It's not like coastal pollution or marine plastics, which are, you know, these are tangible, they're real, they're easily visible. Climate change is complex, it's large, it's all-encompassing. And I think that's its primary difficulty. It's probably too large. You know, I've often argued that anything that is beyond a certain size becomes invisible. Actually, it was Douglas Adams who said that earlier before me. <laughs> it sits nicely in our blind spot through some kind of a cognitive dissonance and makes it easy to ignore because it's so large, it becomes what Douglas Adams calls someone else's problem and that makes it invisible. I think we as scientists and as communicators have done actually a fairly miserable job of bringing climate change out of these shadows and making it real. So we keep talking about climate change, but it's difficult to show people that any one particular event is climate change. And that's 
a problem of communication, a problem in, inherent in the science and inherent in scientists themselves as communicators. And I'm convinced that if we are able to do more about that, societies, I think, will rally around to demand change. And some of that is happening, I think, with climate change movements around the world. And I think that's very positive. So the thing that I would like to say, which may be you know, slightly controversial, is that demanding individual change for a paradigm shift, I think, is great. But it may be a bit of a distraction. And you know, for the large capitalist industrial machine, it is actually a very welcome distraction. You know, the problem is with you. You want change, go ahead and be the change. But what that masks is that global consumption patterns are actually deeply entrenched in capitalist modes of production and which themselves are built into our current institutional models. It involves the way global production systems are set up, the way government and business interacts, the way our cities are designed, the way we measure human progress, what we value in terms of development, how we say that this country is doing well this year or, or badly this year. And these are much, much more difficult to fix than taking your cotton bag to the supermarket. So unless we're able to take the fight to this inherently poisonous, destructive system of capitalist production, I don't think we're going to make a dent in the climate crisis with changing individual choices. Rohan, you said you're an optimist. And now <laughs> <laughs> the way you're talking about it does not sound optimistic at all, Rohan. <laughs> well... I think that we need us to rise up to demand change as a society. I, I truly believe that. I think it it may happen too late to save the coral reefs of the world. I mean, the reefs of the world, the reefs of the Lakshadweep, which is my little prism to the lens to the world, have already changed. I think that in the next 30 years or so, the reefs will have declined beyond the point that they're recognizable to me. They will change into something. It will have another set of functions, okay? But when it comes to human survival on the islands, when change occurs, it might be too late for places like the Lakshadweep. Many coastal systems will probably have suffered a huge amount of damage by then. But as I said earlier, I think we are an inherently resistant lot. You know, I hope we finally get our act together. And I just hope it won't be at too great a cost. I hope that that doesn't sound too optimistic, does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on something a little bit lighter. You were recently featured in a book, 10 Indian Champions of Fighting to Change a Planet. <laughs> I would love to hear more about that, please. <laughs> I'm a bit embarrassed about uh, you know being featured in that book. Radha Radhakrishnan, Rangarajan, sorry, contacted me and she said that she was doing this book for the younger readers. I don't really think of myself as a champion. I think the book serves as this important, yeah, an important purpose for younger readers of charting possible career paths in ecology, conservation and climate change, which I think is is important. I think it's important that more and more young people start getting interested in understanding ecosystems and understanding the complex problems of conservation and climate change that we are facing in the world. We don't have enough people who are studying that. And I think in that respect, the, the book does a very good job. I still hold on to the idea that we actually don't need superheroes here. Uh, superheroes in general are flawed creatures. They're misplacing their costumes, they're tripping over their capes. <laughs> and under the glare of expectation, they often fail. And I think that if we look to champions and superheroes to change the planet, I think we'll be waiting a long time. What we need is, I think, something much more mundane. I think change will come when, when the faceless majority begins to request change and demand it. Even though I hate to admit it, I think a bunch of boring, invisible bureaucrats will probably do much, much more for the climate crisis than swashbuckling heroes. And as my last question then, what would your call of action 
be to our listeners? What would you want them to do? I, I know you said faceless bureaucrats, but what would your call of action be in that sense? So as I've said earlier, I think individual change is great. It makes us feel like we are doing something. And I shouldn't overstate that. I think it serves a purpose. It starts a conversation. I think it's an important conversation that we should be having. And it's perhaps the most important conversation in civilization's recent history. But I think the direction of that conversation needs to be changed a little bit. We need to be taking a cold, hard look at what holds up our current capitalist systems, which lie at the heart of the climate crisis. We need to start discussing alternate modes of governance that deprivilege these modes of production. I think if the current pandemic has taught us anything in the most unfortunate way, but it is, it has shown us that we are capable of living simple lives and that degrowth is a societal possibility. So our conversation, I think, needs to shift. And that conversation is where we need to start. When that happens, I think our governments and our businesses will be forced to shift as well. Or oh, that's the hope. I do really hope that whatever you've said does come true. Thank you so much, Rohan. I've had a lovely time talking to you and you've given us such thoughts to take away and think about as well, especially about what's happening with the quarantine. So thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. A pleasure, Keith.